This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the shortages of children's pain medications and how that's exacerbating the crisis in emergency care. Well, it's not just kids' drugs that are in short supply. Hundreds of drugs are in short supply, including 23 that are considered critical. A third of prescription drugs are on back order and there are problems getting things like adult over-the-counter cough and cold syrup, eye drops, and even some oral antibiotics. Pharmacists are scrambling to find alternatives. Uh, let me give you the numbers. I'd like to hear from you. Have you had trouble getting anything that you need? And, uh, Anything else related, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by John Papasturgio, who is a pharmacist at Shoppers Drug Mart. Hi, John. Hey, Libby. How are you? Long time. Long time. Great to talk to you. Uh, you have four pharmacies. What's your situation? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's not great right now, but, uh, you know, my, my biggest concern really is the over-the-counter shortages that we're experiencing, primarily with the uh, children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Uh, why is that so important? Because, you know, we try to manage low-grade fevers with kids, uh, typically, uh, you know, in the home, uh, you know, through the advice of a pharmacist and prevent them from having to go to urgent care or kind of walk-in clinics or, or worst-case scenario, the emergency room. But, when you don't have access to those medications, the problem is, you know, parents start to get real nervous. They can't control the fever. Fever's been up for two or three days, and inevitably they go seek uh, alternative care. And I think that's my biggest concern, and that's what I'm spending a lot of time on uh, right now, trying to kind of, uh, you know, better, best educate patients, give them some advice on what to do. Uh, the other shortages, uh, they're there. Many have been kind of, we've, had, we've experienced shortages over the last year and a half two years, many of them pandemic-related supply issues. I think globally, uh, we're seeing this as well. Uh, more concerning recently has been the antibiotic shortages, the children's antibiotic uh, liquid shortages, uh, primarily amoxicillin and azithromycin. I mean, uh, you know, they are very, very high-demand products with kids, kids that have strep, uh, you know, ear infections, things like that. We, you know, upper respiratory uh, bacterial infection. Obviously, they're very, very important class of medications. Those have been coming in sporadically, though, so the, the supply has been uh, inconsistent. I think though, it's important for the listeners that not every infection is treated with an antibiotic, and particularly now, what we're seeing circulating are not bacterial infections or things like RSV, COVID, influenza, A and B starting to circulate. So, you know, we, we've got to also, uh, you know, define when we need to use antibiotics and when we I don't. I know, that's a big uh, deal because you don't want to have antibiotic resistance. But getting back to the drug shortages, so a couple of questions. I know you're focused on the kids. Uh, I have to say, just totally anecdotal, uh, when I went looking for adult uh, Tylenol, 
you know, the kind of uh, Tylenol cold and sinus. Uh, the shelves were pretty empty. I think I got the last one in a big yeah, pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, you know what the problem is, Libby? They're coming in, but they're coming in in like packs of 12. Like everyone's on allocation right now. So we're not, we can't order what, what we need and demand is going through the roof. So, you know, you may come in one day and I have it. You come in the next day and it's gone because people are buying it as soon as it, you know, gets dropped onto the shelf. And that's kind of the reality of the situation right now. With respect to the adult stuff, we, we, we have supply of like Tylenol, but we do have it in stock. And uh, if we don't have it one day, we generally will get it the next. So it's, it hasn't been as large of a concern, but you're right. If you happen to be in a store that hasn't got the delivery for that day or whatever, uh, it could seem uh, like we don't have any as well. Uh, and, uh, uh, so is it, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing about cough and cold syrup, eye drops, uh, and some of those pain medicines, you're saying they're just coming in, in, in dribs and drabs. That's the problem. It really is. It's dribs and drabs. When you ask the wholesalers and the suppliers what's going on, they say, well, they've had, you know, overwhelming uh, demand. And, uh, you know, they were also faced with uh, challenges in manufacturing. So it's been both a supply and a demand issue that's kind of uh, put them in this situation. We have seen a uh, huge demand, obviously, for cough and cold products, given what's going on in the community right now with all uh, the infections and so many people uh, sick. They are coming in and, and buying this stuff as well. So it's kind of it's kind of both situations uh, playing out here. But my hope is we'll, we'll we'll have some supply soon. I mean, I think uh, uh, Health Canada said they've they've acquired uh, additional children's medication, but we haven't seen that reflected on the shelves as of yet. Okay, so a, a, a couple of more things with that. So most of the respiratory infections are not uh, bacterial. So what can people take for those? Yeah, that's very important, right? So I mean. You know, now we're just managing the symptoms, right? Like if, if you have, a, uh, you know, a COVID infection or RSV infection, you're not going to be managed with, with medications in most situations. I mean, we have for the very high risk patients, we do have some alternatives now, but, um, such as, you know, we're, we're, man- sorry, such as the alternatives. So, for example, you could get prescribed Paxlovid, for example, for a COVID infection, which is a, you know, it's a pretty, pretty uh, intense regimen of, uh, you know, antibiotics that seems, uh, to shave off some days and, and improve outcomes in patients. And we are seeing those prescriptions and we do have that in stock. But generally that's reserved for our patients with, you know, older patients with risk factors that are at higher risk for more severe illness, right? So we do, we do, we are seeing those scripts and we're, we're filling them here in the community. But the vast majority of these viral infections, we, we treat the symptoms. So what do we do? A lot of fluids, go home, rest. We try to manage the fever if it's there, if we can get kind of a Tylenol or ibuprofen. But the reality is we're, you know, uh, we're just hoping the immune system and the vaccines, I think it's worth talking about vaccination as well, do their job and, and, and you know, the infection runs its course for, uh, relatively quickly. Are there patients that can get more acutely ill? Absolutely. And those are the ones that we try to monitor closely and obviously refer off if they need additional care. Uh, uh, another question, John, before I take a call, uh, can parents who cannot find, uh, Tylenol or other meds, can they kind of, uh, give their kids like a, a, a part of an adult pill? Uh, is that a reasonable solution? Absolutely. And that's what we've been doing here, right? I know some pharmacists have been compounding, uh, syrups, uh, uh, with, 
with like acetaminophen tablets, for example. Uh, simplest solution, you know, speak to your pharmacist based on the age and weight of the child will tell you what fraction of the adult dose uh, to take. The challenge with some of these is they're hard to split because they're film coated or whatever, and it can be a little difficult. But if you can buy a, a you know pill splitter, you can do it. And there's the non coated ones that we have in stock right now. And I've been, you know, I've been managing kids with that. You know, telling patients take a half of this, crush it up with some applesauce, and you're good to go. So you know, there are solutions. Is this, is this the you know best case scenario? Absolutely not. But your pharmacists are there to help. You know, speak to them if you're unsure. But please do not those kids with adult. Uh, formulations if you're not sure what dose to give because even though these over these medications are over the counter, acetaminophen in high doses can be quite dangerous and can have a real uh, serious impact on the liver, especially in kids. So you want to make sure you're giving the right, right dose. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Natalie in Oakville. Hello, Natalie. Hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, my question was about expired medication. So um, my husband was guilty, unfortunately, of stockpiling a bit of Tylenol and children's products um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And some of those products are somewhat expired. Um, would you consider them safe to use? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot now, right? i got to be careful what I'm going to say. So, you know, the reality is we know with tablets, for sure, when something becomes expired, it doesn't automatically become toxic, right? So if you take a a drug that expired three or four months ago. It's not toxic in any way. What does happen is the medication with time will begin to degrade. So if you're getting, say, 500 milligrams of, of a tablet, maybe there's only 480 in there, right? So the vast majority of medications, uh, you know, are not toxic if you take them when they're expired. That being said, I can't go on the radio and encourage patients to take expired medications, right? We have to be careful with the sake. It is a little bit different with liquid. Liquids are much, much less stable, and the pediatric medications generally are in liquid formulation. And when they are expired, I recommend absolutely do not take them, because what you'll see if you actually look in the bottle of those expired liquid formulations, you'll start to see them separate. You'll start to see little like particles starting to form. So the liquid, uh, you know, uh, concoctions generally aren't stable beyond the expiry date, particularly if they've been stored in conditions that are either hot, humid, like bathrooms or whatnot. So I would I would urge patients to be a little bit more careful with that, speak to their pharmacist. But there is some rationale to what you're saying with your old tablets, for sure. Okay. I hope that was helpful. John Pepistergio, thank you so much for that. No problem. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay, so the drug shortages were the subject of a very heated session of the House of Commons Health Committee yesterday, where there weren't many answers. Authorities have known about the problem since the spring, and apparently one of the issues is a lack of manufacturing capacity here at home. So I think it's a good time to get a better handle on how drugs are purchased and distributed. Uh, Let me give you the numbers to call again, 416 360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Angelique Berg, President and CEO of the Canadian Association for Pharmacy Distributing Management, and Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, the Hannah Chair of the History of Medicine at Queen's University, and tracker of drug shortages on her website, canadadrugshortage.com. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello. 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 Let us begin with Angelique. And uh, 
I would like to understand better how drugs are distributed. You know, I would have assumed with over-the-counter that a private pharmacy just orders what they want, but there's a little more to it than that, right? There is. And pharmaceutical distributors are the critical intermediaries between manufacturers and pharmacies. So what they do is they consolidate and they streamline orders and deliveries between hundreds of manufacturers and thousands of pharmacies, both in communities and hospitals right across their country. Mm -hmm. So um, what is the issue about uh, a lack of manufacturing capacity here at home versus ordering from elsewhere? Um, specific to the, the infant or the pediatric analgesic and um, shortages, we actually don't usually have a problem. It works quite well. We have manufacturers that manufacture here in Canada, and we haven't had this kind of shortage before, so it usually works. Um, we might need to consider, <clears throat> excuse me, amplifying that, um, that manufacturing capacity in the future, but so much has changed in the pandemic. I think we're all observing and watching and really trying to take some lessons from this and planning how to do this better in the future. Uh, okay, let us bring in Dr. Jacqueline Duffin. So you keep track of what is in shortage. I try to. I've been doing this since 2010 uh, when my patients in the cancer clinic here in Kingston couldn't obtain a simple old remedy to control nausea. And I've been trying to find out what the causes are of drug shortages. I, I would like your listeners to know that in addition to the problems we have with uh, kids' Tylenol right now, we have over 1,800 drugs in short supply in Canada right now. This one is particularly poignant because it's widespread. It's obvious because it's over the counter and we see the empty shelves and because we're all worried about our kids. But when this gets solved, I hope people remember that there are chronic ongoing drug shortages that we need to better understand. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I remember what really sticks in my head uh, is that I was actually doing a TV show on drug shortages when the pandemic was declared on the very day, <laughs> yeah. which was March the 12th, 2020, or something like that, or March the 11th. Uh, so yes, it's a chronic problem. Um, uh, Dr. Duffin, do you, do you, you know, I, I've seen a lot of finger pointing, but where's the problem or who's at fault here? I mean, you said parents are stockpiling and demand is bigger and, and supply chains. Where do you see the problem? Well, uh, if anyone goes to my website, they'll see a page for the causes that I've been considering. Uh, I think each shortage is caused by a combination of several ca causes at once. Uh, we don't make many of the drugs here in Canada. Uh, that isn't necessarily a problem. If uh, we're comfortable with the way the drugs are made offshore and we are able to transport them and ship them, then, then that's fine. That's good if they're good quality products. But we've seen a big shift in the pharmaceutical industry over the last two decades, uh, a decrease in the number of companies that make the same product, for example. Uh, so if you're down to very few manufacturers and then you have a disruption of some sort, either because there's an increase in demand, as we're seeing right now, or because there's a problem in the factory, uh, you don't have any margin. And uh, so that 
that mechanism is considered to be one that is producing drug shortages. Why are the companies not making the drugs? Some argue that the prices have fallen too low. Uh, there's, there's a host of factors that contribute. Uh, the pandemic, uh, definitely because it disrupted shipping as well as manufacturing because there were too many sick people. Uh, but, uh, we don't, we don't have enough information about those forces. We need more transparency. Um, Angelique, um, what kind of problems at factories can cause this? I mean, I, I remember with certain heart medications, there were, uh, you know, something toxic. Or is, is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? Mm. Dr. Dustin's exactly right, that the, the problems and the solutions are very complex. What could bring down a production facility? It could be a multiplicity of factors. It could be, you know, a failure to meet a regulation that uh, meets Canadian standards. It could be shortage of a product, um, inability to source the active pharmaceutical ingredient. Um, it could be a number of different things. The shortage that we're looking at here in Canada right now, um, and that was the subject of your earlier conversation, this really was about a stark demand shift. Um, and the lack of ability to build inventory over time on a seasonal product. That demand shift hit in the spring, which is when producers are typically building inventory throughout the supply chain on the seasonal product. There was no time this, um, you know, in this situation. So what is being ordered from pharmacies is being shipped out on an allocation basis. But they can't bake all the cookies at once. Uh, you only have so many production facilities and such. So what is coming off the production lines right now is going out into the pharmacies and they're receiving their allocation of the available product. We're going to be playing catch up for a while. Uh, yeah, we just heard that from pharmacist John Puppesturgio. He was saying it, it's coming in, but in, in dribs and drabs. Um, Dr. Duffin, uh, what advice do you have for people? And also, what about substitutions? Uh, well, first, I want to say it's uh, fun to be sharing a platform with Angelique again and <laughs> listening to her sensible comments. I'm not the person to be asking uh, for substitutes. Uh, that's the pharmacist or the physician. Uh, I I think that what I'm hoping is that uh, this experience, which has once again raised awareness, almost Always we get uh, a lot of media attention when the shortage affects children. Uh, we remember it with EpiPens. We've had it with certain cancer medications. We've also had it with diabetes medications in the past. And uh, when it gets solved, the action kind of disappears because, well, that's solved and we move on to the next. But what we need is a better mechanism in Canada to understand what is underlying all of the drug shortages, the ones for cardiovascular medicine, for Parkinson's disease, for depression. These are important medications too, and people suffer when they can't uh, obtain them. So we, we need an essential medicines list in Canada that will list the most important drugs. We will know which ones have very few manufacturers and therefore might be vulnerable to shortages. We will know where to go if they are in short supply. Uh, we also, because it's been said over and over again, we don't necessarily make the drugs here in Canada, we need to lead an international conversation about this problem because it is a global problem. And uh, I've, I've been tracking uh, shortages of exactly the same medications in uh, various other countries in both Asia and Europe. 
it's not something that we can solve all by ourselves right here in Canada, short of building a pharmaceutical industry right here in Canada that makes everything. And that's not likely to happen. Um, what about this? Uh, I've heard of drug manufacturing say, uh, hey, we just don't make enough money on this. Too bad. So sad. Uh, well, that is one of the causes you'll find at my website. Uh, there are a number of um, important policy uh, people here in Canada who suggest we play pay too much for our generic drugs, but nobody seems to know what the right price might be. It has to be a price that makes it worthwhile to manufacture. If the price has fallen so low and the client base is too small, companies are going to lose money making drugs. Drug companies are not charities, but in fairness to drug companies, they don't like the shortages either. They would like to be able to meet uh, all of the demands in an appropriate time frame. Uh, you would think, uh, using a business perspective, that there'd be money to be made if this is a shortage, then replacing it would help. But uh, you can't just turn on a dime, as Angelique so clearly said. I mean, it, it is mystifying. I mean, the lack of customers for these drugs, uh, that's definitely not the problem. Angelique? No, there's, there are, there are, of course, the, where manu, manufacturers are making drugs to help the intended, uh, the intended patients. The difficulty, as, as, um, Dr. Duffin had said, is, you know, looking for solutions and stopping. Once the, once the shortage is over, let's not just all go back to our usual business, but actually stopping, looking at the stakeholders in the, in the landscape. And the landscape is complex. We have regulators from different departments of the government, from federal and provincial. We have this manufacturers, different um, supply chain stakeholders. And stopping and actually observing what happens and looking at the um, the different factors, the different aspects of it, and really trying to change the business and make it work for Canadians is, is extremely important. Right now, I think that's happening. And people are taking pause after the pandemic and really thinking about that, especially in supply chains. You don't think about how your drugs get to you, as long as they get to you. It's much like the electricity grid. As long as your lights click on, you don't think about how that electricity gets to your house, but you sure think about it when it's not working. And that's what's happening right now. I think there's a lot of good dialogue that's happening and that we're all pausing to think about what are the solutions that we can take from this and bring forward. Okay, so uh, do either of you know right now where in the supply chain is the problem? I mean, I've heard of everything from... Binders used in drugs being in a short supply, but do you, do do we know where the bottleneck is? We don't really know. Well, at least uh, the general public doesn't really know. I think that individual manufacturers know what their specific problems are, but the supply chain has been fragile for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. And when you add in uh, a new thing like a, an increase in demand, uh, a need for the drug, or you have a problem like a fire in a factory or a hurricane, we've seen that have an influence as well, um, you don't get any warning about it, and you can't just quickly uh, solve it. We, we need more transparency about where the active ingredients come from and where the finished products come from in our country, uh, and, and we need to have some kind of mechanism for understanding what we do to replace them should they fall into short supply. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Duffin, what you said earlier about um, in a single source, uh, single source product, uh, the, those molecules that are vulnerable, where we only have one manufacturer yeah. or one option yeah. or one manufacturer of an API, those are extreme vulnerabilities. And and you, Libby, you asked where you know where exactly the bottleneck is or the issue. 
it could be anywhere depending on the product. Um, it really does come down a lot of times to the product itself, and it gets that specific. I'd like to add also that just before this conversation, I went and checked, uh, and uh, I found that over 500 products containing acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol, have been abandoned by 90 different companies over a period of time here in Canada. We still have several companies that are actively marketing uh, acetaminophen containing products, but uh, there, there has been a big shift, and uh, the number of manufacturers of uh, drugs has certainly decreased over time. Okay. I'm looking at the clock. We've got to wrap up. 20 seconds to each of you, starting with Angelique Berg. Sure. And thank you so much again for having, having us here. There's, there is significant opportunity to improve the supply chain stability and viability in Canada. And we really do need to take a hard look at what the issues are, what are the common issues that we can solve, and how we can strengthen the delivery of medications to Canadians, maintaining that safe, secure, and um, expansive supply and access across Canada, and yet with an eye to the future, really building for Canadians to meet their demands and meet what they need. Dr. Duffin, last 20 seconds to you. What she said. And uh, thank you very much for your questions, which I hope you will keep asking once this particular crisis is solved. Okay. Thanks so much, Angelique Berg and Dr. Jacqueline Duffin. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're opening the phone lines to talk about COPD. And this is a disease that affects uh, well over 800,000 people in Canada. Before we go, let me give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be right back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today marks World COPT Day. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a progressive lung condition. And according to COPD Canada, it affects as many as 384 million people around the world and is the third leading cause of death globally. Here in Canada, according to StatsCan, there are over 830,000 people who've been diagnosed with the disease. So what's it all about and how best to manage it? Let me give the numbers out again because we have someone here with the answers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Henry Roberts, who is a member of the Executive Committee at COPD Canada. Welcome, Henry. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Libby. Well, um, COPD is uh, a big problem and difficult to manage, but I would imagine that the pandemic has made things worse. Well, it it has. Um, our members and COPDers generally hunkered down when the uh, pandemic hit, but they were broadsided by uh, all kinds of other issues. Uh, for, for example, we've got a survey that was published by the Spanish uh, equivalent of COPD Canada that looked at the impact of COVID on COPDers. Uh, you can find the full report on our website, copdcanada.info forward slash 76. 
But I'll read a few things out of the report just to summarize the impact of COVID on COPD. 73.3% of the patients surveyed indicated that their COPD had worsened during the pandemic. 62% reported a worsening of shortness of breath. 82% of the patients uh, felt that concern for their respiratory health had increased. 79.2% of patients surveyed indicated that the pandemic had greatly worsened their sleep quality. 83% feel depressed and unwilling to do anything. And it goes on and on and on and on. So it's not the catching of the COVID virus. It's the impact of the pandemic on the quality of life of COPDers. Well, that was my question. Now, this is people who had COPD, but what happened if on on top of it, they got COVID? They would be very, very ill and would likely die. And what about, uh, can can COVID or long COVID lead to COPD? I don't think there's a direct correlation. COPD is primarily caused by the inhalation of smoke. Cigarette smoking is the big cause. Um, we're involved with the global committee to increase awareness. They're part of this uh, global awareness campaign. And there was a report in the Lancet that was published by the UK-based group. And uh, it indicated that smoke and pollution are soon to overtake COP or cigarette smoking as the major cause of COPD. Now, that's more of a third world issue than in Canada. But if we look at the forest fires that we're experiencing, imagine if you lived in the Okanagan Valley, you had COPD and you were living with that smoke, which in particular has very fine airborne particulates, which is uh, extremely damaging to the lungs. Okay, so it is mostly the result of smoking, certainly here it, in Canada. It, cer it certainly is. Yeah, that's the primary cause. And and incidentally, uh, uh, environmental uh, airborne particulates. Yeah, I'd like to mention that, that a lot of the people in Canada are rural, and uh, and they use wood to cook and heat, and that wood burning it also uh, releases particulates that damage the lung. Okay, I'd like to take a couple of calls, and before I do that, let me give the numbers out again: four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. And let's go to Kim in Mississauga. Hello, Kim. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, living, I'm living with COPD. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I was diagnosed in 2006 with it. Okay. And I smoked for more than 30 years. So uh, Let that's, me ask that, you what that, that's probably the cause of it. But... Uh, yeah, it's getting progressively worse, and uh, it's taken its time. But uh, some of the new drugs that they've got out there have helped the great. Uh, are you there still, Kim? Kim? Yes. Yes. Okay, uh, Henry wants I, to say I do something. have a question. Uh, was your COPD confirmed by spirometry, a lung function? Yeah. It was. Well, yeah. that's a good yeah. thing. My my, I've, uh, since then, I've had two respirologists, yes. That's a good thing. A lot of people have been diagnosed with uh, COPD, and they've not had that confirmed by spirit spirometry. And that's no, a, I, I have. Yes. Yeah, that's a major issue. And uh, I go, uh, I go once a year for a breathing test to see how, uh, see what my capacity is and this sort of thing. My oxygen level right now is great, but uh, yeah, um, you're a reference to uh, 
COPD and the epidemic that we've just gone through. I just got out of the hospital a couple of weeks ago. With uh, I got I went in there with a respiratory problem, and of course with COPD on top of it, I was in there for almost a week. But uh, and they put me on oxygen and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it uh, it can and they say now okay fine you got to rest up for probably a couple of months to get back to where you were. If I ever do get back to where I was, which I definitely am going to hope, hopefully, and I am trying to do. So, are you uh, are you up to date with all your vaccines? It's extremely important. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I've got four vaccines. I haven't got the flu shot because I, I just had this respiratory thing. So, but uh, I'm my lungs are clear now, so I can get the uh, flu shot. And after two weeks after that, I can get my fifth shot. So yeah, if, okay. you, if you get a flu shot, ask for the quadrivalent. It's the high dose flu vaccine. It's, yeah, well, yeah, that's, that, yeah. that's, that's what I'm going that's for. That's the one to get. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Kim. We wish you all the best. Let's go to Joan in Oshawa. Hello, Bye-bye. Joan. Hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, I'm still going. <laughs> um. I was diagnosed with uh, COPD. Yep. Um, it's, well, when I was a child, I was I had about everything, including diphtheria. Um, and uh, with the uh, uh, coughing, I, I was getting pneumonia quite often. And I've had it nine times. Wow. In the past, in the past uh, two years. Has your pneumonia ever triggered an exacerbation that's led you to the hospital? Yes. <clears throat> and can I ask you what they what the what the process was that you went through in the emergency department? Uh, well, I had to wait quite a while, and yeah. then uh, um, I believe I saw um, the the doctor that I saw. Uh, took me in, and I had tests done, and I was given given medication uh, to take, and uh, they didn't really say a lot of anything because there was a backup in the waiting room, and and that. So I've just been, you know, going along trying to uh, just. Um, if I find that I can't breathe properly um i just rest for for a bit and then uh, when i feel i can speak without uh, uh having a lot of problems breathing then uh i can uh, you know start talking again uh, how long and i have a cpap machine okay that uh, i've i've had that for oh geez about 7 8 years I think My there's a shortage of those, that. too. Uh, Joan, do you have a question for Henry? Yes. Um, I'd like to know if there's some way um, that this shortness of breath, is there anything that one can t- take for the shortness of breath? Okay. I'm going to let you go, Joan, so you keep listening, and Henry will answer. Well, yeah. There are- okay. There are, there are very good bronchodilators out there that should uh, relieve that. Um, 
COPD is usually treated in a, what they call a stepwise fashion. So they start you on a drug called the Lama Spireva is one of the, uh, the big ones. And then as your disease progresses, they will add a long-acting bronchodilator to that muscarin agent, it's called. And then as your COPD progresses, usually triggered by exacerbations, we like to use the term lung attacks, and uh, they'll add an inhaled corticosteroid. Um, so it's, you'd end up with a, a combination like a Spiriva and a Simbicord or Spiriva and Advair are the brand names of those combination drugs. Recently, the pharma industry has launched those three compounds in one medication. So there are two on the market right now. One is called Trelogy from GlaxoSmithKline, and the other is from AstraZeneca. It's just been introduced called Brestree. So that Eliminates, eliminates the need to juggle inhalers that often are different kinds of inhalers. And that's a whole other new subject of people not using their inhalers properly and not getting the medications into their lungs. So Okay. Well, I know um, uh, they now give people these little tubes called spacers, that's which right. are supposed to make sure that you get the stuff that, in the right place. That's right. A lot of people find those very helpful. Yeah, and it's it's not a big deal. It's like a plastic tube. That's right. Uh, we have to take another break. Uh, on the other side of it, people, we will take more of your calls and comments. Let me give the numbers out again before we go to break. 416-360-0740, toll-free 740 and we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is World COPD Day, and I am here with Henry Roberts, who is with COPD Canada, and he's answering your questions and giving us a lot of helpful information about this disease that affects so many Canadians. I'm going to start by taking a call from Mary in Toronto. Hello, Mary. Hi. Hi. You're on the air. Go ahead. Okay. So my husband was diagnosed with COPD in 2016 or 17. Make a long story short, in 2021, he got COVID, gave it to me. I was sicker than he was. He also has cirrhosis of the liver. But he had few symptoms, but not many. And then more recently, he had a seizure uh, that he... Uh, he was seizing for two hours before I found him. Anyways, they put him in a medically induced coma, and uh, he came out of that after five days. And he, there's no evidence that he was ever sick. I don't understand why. Is, it, is he a medical miracle? I really don't. I thought COPD, and if you got COVID with COPD, then it was fatal. But he's still going strong. He's 66 years old. Is there something maybe he was misdiagnosed? I, I don't know. He's actually right now uh, getting a CAT scan done on his lungs, which he has done once or twice a year. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say knock wood, even though it's not wood. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, uh, he sounds like an amazing specimen. But I, th- I think he was very fortunate. Was his uh, COPD confirmed by spirometry? Yes. It was. Since 2016. Yeah. I, well, I think he uh, touched wood, uh, dodged a bullet, that's for sure. And uh, hopefully uh, 
things have all cleared up. But these respiratory viruses are, are pretty serious. Where, you know, now we, I think they just proclaim the uh, the flu virus is now an epidemic. An epidemic. We've, we've got the, the new RSV virus, which has kind of come out of nowhere and uh, is affecting small children and now older adults. So, well, um, you know what? He has n- not had any vaccines, none. So he's got no COVID vaccine, no flu vaccine. Um, he does, I, he, I have to admit, he does have trouble breathing from time to time. I can hear it when he sleeps. But other than that, um, all I can say is he's a medical miracle because by race, even after the COVID, because I was very, very sick for three weeks in bed, literally in bed, and he gave the virus to me and... And he pulled through better than I did. So, so don't and you? I, and I've been vaccinated. Don't you think that all of that should indicate to him that he might want to consider getting vaccinated? And uh, you know what? I brought that to him, but he feels that uh, if he gets vaccinated, he'll probably be sicker than he is. Uh, I don't know what his logic is. It doesn't really make sense, but yeah. Okay. But like I said, you know, Okay. A medical miracle. Uh, and uh, uh, I must say, uh, not uh, <laughs> not great choices there in terms of vaccination. Let's take a call from Mike at the airport. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. My, uh, I just think it's important to your audience to hear that Emphysema is a very, very serious disease that is also a part of COPD. And at the same time, is there any programs that families can go to for emotional uh, support? Well, typically pre-pandemic, there was access to, if you were diagnosed with COPD and had access to a specialist, the specialist, a respirologist, could recommend you to a pulmonary rehab program. Uh, They were excellent in beyond the just learning, relearning how to breathe, uh, the exercise to manage or the lessons to manage panic attacks and the like. There was a sense of camaraderie. We were very involved with Toronto Western Hospital's pulmonary rehab clinic and 35 people would typically be at a session. And it wasn't just the exercising and learning how to use inhalers and knowing what medicines. There was a sense of camaraderie and community. You know, you're with other people who are going through the same travels. And uh, and that I think helped mental health uh, Six week quite a program. Bit. Yeah, and it, for me to be signed up again, it would come out of my pocket. Oh, that's okay. not you know that's not right. The government the government knows that uh, pulmonary rehab really works. It's been underfunded forever. Uh, we do our best to encourage the expansion of. Uh, pulmonary rehab facilities across the country. We're very fortunate in downtown Toronto that you know that that we have a place like Toronto Western Hospital. And there's a good program at Credit Valley West. We we also profiled them in our newsletter. But yeah, I, I don't and, know. What, uh, I don't know what to say. There's everybody wants funding for. Well, unfortunately, I'm not in control of that. I'm just mentioning how it will cost if you want to do more time with it. Um, I was rejected for a lung transplant because I, I have uh, coronary artery disease, and I don't seem to be getting help out here. 
Where are you located? Well, I'm at the uh, uh, basically Orangeville, Toronto area. So you can't get into the Credit Valley facility? Uh, I haven't tried. He's always told me about it. Yeah, they have a very good program there. They use swimming pools as well. Uh, they have a swimming pool. So the rehab is beyond just lung rehab. It's for people who have damaged their hips and knees and, and the like. And uh, we, it was so unique that we went out and interviewed and profiled their program because of the use of uh, uh, the water. Hope that's helpful, Mike. Thanks for your call. Um, Henry, you have a checklist for people with COPD. What, what is on there? Okay. Um, a, a group of uh, people created a committee, an act on COPD committee. And over the past year, so it's com- the committee is composed of respirologists from across the country, family medicine specialists, uh, pharmacists, COPD patient advocacy groups were a member of it. And uh, we wanted to create a very easy to use checklist of things you should ask your healthcare provider when you have an appointment. A lot of people get the appointment and get carried away and forget to ask very fundamental You know, that, that happens with, with every kind of doctor's appointment. Yeah, so this checklist is available for download. Uh, we, we're using World COPD Day to launch the checklist. It's available at copdcanada.info forward slash three. You can download it as a single sheet that you can write your meds on the back of. Uh, to, or you can download it as a business card, so it'll print out as a, a as a business card that you can fold in half, and you could write your meds on the back of that. But it's it's a simple to use checklist of uh, the major points you should inquire of your healthcare provider. Do you want to go over them? Um, well, you have one. Uh, sorry. Go over them, please. Yeah, okay. So it's uh, it's called My COPD Checklist, and keep this checklist and your med list handy to review with your healthcare provider to improve the management of your COPD. Point number one, I've had my COPD diagnosis confirmed with a breathing test in bracket spirometry. Point two, I will review my symptoms of COPD with my healthcare provider. Point three, I will review the symptoms of a COPD flare-up and exacerbation and report if I've had any flare-ups or if I've used my COPD action plan, which is an outline of steps you should take if you're having an attack. I will discuss ways to prevent and manage COPD flare-ups. I will review my current inhaler routine and ensure that I'm using the inhalers correctly. I will discuss other treatment options that may improve my COPD exercise, smoking cessation, diet, vaccination, pulmonary rehab, referral to a specialist or a certified respiratory educator, and access to a respiratory therapist. I want to talk about the exercise piece. If you're short of breath, isn't it hard to exercise? Well, you know, you have to moderate how you exercise. You know, obviously, uh, I could be uh, going faster on the treadmill than somebody who is uh, stage four COPD. But the act of moving is very important. Uh, COPDers, many of them lead very sedentary lives. They're alone. They're not moving that report that the COVID uh, its impact on COPD. 
talked about the kind of listlessness and uh, and the lack of movement. So pulmonary rehab or you know, a modified exercise program is quite good for COPDers. They learn how to breathe. As we get older, we become shallow breathers rather than using our diaphragm to breathe, which is the way we we breathe when we were young people. And uh, and so rehab will retrain you how to properly breathe, how to exercise your uh, chest muscles, exercise your diaphragm, and so on. And, you know, a couple of our callers were talking about a chronic cough, and I see that you have some suggestions here for managing that. Yeah, chronic cough has uh, been given a lot of attention, particularly out of Montreal, Dr. Jean Bourbeau's group at McGill. And uh, there have been a number of webinars about uh, chronic cough. People, you know, describe it as having an itch at the back of their throat. They just can't get rid of it. They believe it's uh, related to the, the, uh, the nerve back there. But, uh, you know, the report that we published in Living with COPD delves into it. Uh, but if you go on the Internet, if you just type in chronic cough, there are many webinars that are just coming up now. And do you, can you give us a hint, like what, what the uh, well, best there, ways described there? Well, there are no therapies for it. There, there are a couple of drugs, one of which is still waiting for approval in Canada. But it's, it's a dilemma. It, it's a dilemma, yeah, yeah. I, would, I would say. So... In general, um, is there any key for managing it aside from being on top of it? For managing COPD? Or yeah. There is. You have, to, <laughs> you have to take your medicines as prescribed. You have to avoid triggers, uh, uh, things like chemicals, household chemicals. You have to avoid being in a room full of smoke or avoid cigarette smokers. If the, you have to be aware or cognizant of the weather, cold weather, particularly. Uh, oh. What? What? Okay. Uh, we were apparently off the air for a bit with an emergency broadcast. Uh, I haven't seen what it is. I'm assuming it's some kind of. Amber Alert, but uh, we're back now. Uh, we have a few minutes left here with Henry Roberts from COPD. Uh, and you were talking about managing the condition. Yeah, you, well, you have to take your medicines as prescribed. Don't uh, skip the medicines. If you can get into pulmonary rehab or any kind of online exercise program, do it. Um, be cognizant of the weather. Cold weather can be particularly hard on people with COPD in that the cold air that you breathe in constricts already compromised airway passages. So the cold weather for a healthy person, it's no big deal. But for someone who already has trouble breathing, it can be quite serious. Uh, you stay away from anybody who's got a cold because that virus will create mucus and a lot of the the COPD, the chronic bronchitis, that one of the uh, uh, main effects of, of that is the increased mucus production that's been described to me as drowning in your own phlegm when they get up in the morning. Uh, we talked a bit, one of your callers talked about emphysema. Emphysema damages the alveoli, the little air sacs. We have billions of them. And I like to describe the damage as uh, thinking of blowing up a balloon, a regular balloon, and then you release the balloon, and the balloon's elasticity 
pushes the air out of the balloon. Now think of blowing up a uh, you know plastic shopping bag, a you know a Loblaws bag, grocery bag. You blow it up, and there's no elasticity in that bag, so the air kind of seeps out, and uh, so that's what's happening with uh, emphysema. I think we have time to take one more call very quickly. We've got Stephen in Brampton. Hi, Stephen. Very oh, quickly, hi, please. Very quickly, yes. My question for the doctor is, or the, the gentleman is, I have the I have moderate COPD. Doesn't affect me. I I can manage it. But uh, does I also have the antitrypsin? Oh. I forget the right name, but your your guest will know what I'm talking about. That's right. It's alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, and it's people. And my question, if I may, is: Would that, on its own, cause COPD? Yeah, COPD is an umbrella term that includes emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and alpha one antitrypsin deficiency. The alpha one pe- people make up about five to ten percent of the total COPD population. Um, the people with alpha-1 have been born with, uh, without the uh, alpha-1 protein, so they're particularly susceptible to COPD, and they get a thing called alpha-1 antitrypsin emphysema. Okay. Uh, we're basically out of time here. Uh, I'm going to give you the last 25 seconds. Henry, what would you like to leave us with? Well, if I'd like to leave you with uh, the, the, the fact that it's World COPD Day. If you can go to our website, copdcanada.info, and share the information that's there with anybody who smokes. If they smoke, your friends, get them to quit smoking. That, that would be the, the main message. Okay. Sounds like a good one. Thank you so much, Henry Roberts of COPD Canada. That was very informative. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.